Last week, we considered how the first three deliverer judges in the book of Judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, point us to Jesus, the great judge and the great deliverer. We saw that God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to bring about his purposes in the world. For us, the question is simply whether we will give him our left hand, so to speak. Whether we will give him the very things that seem ordinary, that seem unspectacular, or even unseemly, that he may show his glory through us. This morning, we will cover both chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Judges, but have no fear, we will not read all of that. Chapter 4 tells the story of Deborah and Barak leading God's people out of Canaanite oppression. And chapter 5 is a song, it's a hymn, it's a poem, it's a reflection on what has happened in chapter 4. I think the best way to approach this sermon is to spend a few moments simply telling the story, and then after we've told the story, to draw out some application in light of that story. So I think after we tell the story, which will be the first, you know, third of the sermon, we'll see three things in the last bit. First, we'll see that God uses all of us. God uses all of us. The second thing we'll see is that God works through all things. God works through all things. And the third thing I think we'll see when we reflect on this narrative is that God grants victory. God grants victory. Let's jump right into the story. We've got no time to waste. Chapter 4, verses one, verse 1 in the book of Judges. And the people of Israel, as so many of these stories begin, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So the people of Israel are oppressed at the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, and his army commander, who will take center stage and be more prevalent this morning, Sisera. At Sisera's command are 900 chariots of iron. These are ancient tanks. With these bad boys, you are unbeatable. Let's just say the Canaanite defense budget was much bigger than Israel's. Now, if you were here last week, you may notice, why did they skip over Shamgar? So we met three judges last week, the first Othniel, the second Ehud, who the text spent most of its time talking about, and the third was Shamgar, who we just got like one verse about. But the text this week picks up after Ehud died, seemingly skipping right over Shamgar. Well, because Shamgar likely fought to sustain the peace that Ehud had won so decisively. Ehud gets the much larger treatment in the text. I think of the text, I think of this kind of like the War of 1812 in American history. The average Joe doesn't know much about the War of 1812, but we're all speaking with British accents if we don't win it. So the period of peace decisively won by Ehud, we could say was then sustained by Shamgar. That peace won by Ehud, sustained by Shamgar, is over. And once again, the people of God are oppressed. This time with an even bigger and even badder enemy. Enter now Deborah, verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, 
let's say a few words about Deborah before we move on. Deborah is the only judge presented not as a military deliverer, but as a sort of administrator, a wise woman who settles disputes and reveals the heart of God for his people. She was widely esteemed among the people of Israel. People, they said, came up to her for judgment. So Deborah calls for now Barak. Enter Barak, verse 6. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak's response is a bit interesting. It's notoriously vague. It is preached in different ways. If you don't believe me, YouTube sermons on this very topic. Let's see his response, and then I'll speculate as to what it may be telling us. Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Two ways to read this. Let's think about the first for just a moment. The first preach is pretty easily, and it's perhaps pretty common, that this is a reluctant response from Barak, that this is an abdication of his duty, that she is sort of reminding, hey, God called you to go do this, so go do it. And his response is sort of like, I'll go, but only if you go. Like when you're going to something you don't want to go to. Have you ever gone to an event you don't want to go to? You're talking to your friend, they say, hey, are you going to this thing? They're like, yeah, I'm going. I'm only going if you're going. You know, you've said that, you've heard that. I'm only going if you're going. And so a lot of people believe this is how Barack is responding. I'll go, but I'm only going if you're going. Because I frankly don't really want to. That there's a sense in which that God has called him to do something and and Deborah is having to draw this out of him and she's only doing so reluctantly. This reading is supported by Deborah's response. Sure. She says, okay, you'll go, but you will not get the victory and you will not get the glory for this. You're going to go and lead all these people into harm's way on what appears to be a suicide mission. You're not going to get the glory. You're not going to get victory. In fact, Sisera is going to be killed by a woman. The reader's thinking, maybe that woman is Deborah, maybe that woman is someone else, but we don't really know yet. So there's a sense in which you can say Barak is a half-hearted leader. He's a reluctant leader. But there's a second way to read this that also has significant merit from my perspective. His response is not one of reluctance, but one of humility. This reading says he will not go into battle if the word of the Lord does not go before him. He will not go into battle if the one who represents the judgments of the Lord and the word of the Lord is not in some sense present. And this more charitable reading of Barak is lauding his humility because from the jump, he knows he's not going to get any credit for it. You're going to go, you're going to put you and all these people in harm's way, and then you're not going to get the kill shot. You're going to do the work, you're going to all, you're going to flank them, you're going to rout the enemies, but the commander is going to be killed by a woman that's not you, and you won't be remembered as the one who won this decisive victory. So the more charitable reading says that Barak hears this from Deborah, he responds, and even though he won't get the glory, he goes and he 
fights. Whichever is correct is hard to say. What is clear, however, is that Barak is included in Hebrews 11 as an exemplar of faith. Is he perfect? No. Is he a coward? Maybe. Is he courageous? Maybe. Who knows? Here's the point. Barak works by faith. We'll return to him later. Enter Heber the Kenite, a character who should have nothing to do with this story. Verse 11. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Okay, this is a break in the story pretty decisively. We get a random mention of a man named Heber. He's kind of related to Moses. He separates from his people. He's that cousin. You know what I mean? Everyone's got that cousin that just kind of wants to go away from the family as much as they can. I don't have that cousin, anyone watching at home on YouTube. All my cousins who tune in regularly. But we all kind of know there's that one person who sort of uh, doesn't get along with the rest of the family that sort of goes and, and does their own thing. We, for some reason, meet Heber the Kenite who moved away from the rest of the Kenites and got as far away from him as he could. And as of yet, we know not why we meet him. We get this random mention of a man named Heber, sort of related to Moses, separates from his people. He's that cousin. Back to the story in verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera in all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. What a pregame speech by Deborah. And if you don't hear that and get ready to go fight, she says, up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. All that charge that he needed, does not the Lord go before you? Running into this suicide mission in front of 900 chariots of iron, Deborah the prophetess calls out, go in the name of the Lord, and does he not go before you? And they are ready to fight. They come down from the mountain, the chariots get bogged down in the valley, and it's an absolute slaughter. Cicero hops off his chariot, he takes off his troops left for dead. Verse 17, he fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Enter again that crazy cousin, Heber the Kenite. Back to that guy who just randomly shows up in the middle of the story. It turns out, in some sense, he is cozy with these Canaanite leaders. Nothing unites people like a shared enemy. Nothing unites people. You like them? No, I don't like them either. We're friends. Turns out these people have made themselves friendly to Sisera. They've made themselves friendly to the Canaanite cause. So Sisera thinks, as he's running for his life, hey, there's a guy that moved over here that he's close with us. He, he's with us. If I can just get to his house, 
I'll be safe. If I can just get to his house, I'll escape the judgment that has come to my army. Enter Heber's wife, Jael. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Oh, sorry, I, it, it, verse 17, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Verse 18, and Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug, and he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? What do you say? No. Of course not. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And this is one of the most, I mean, I, I have high reverence for the Bible, but this sentence seems unnecessary. So he died. <laughs> so he died. It makes sense. He lays down. She comes up with, he wants water, but he gets milk in a tent peg. And the tent peg goes through his temple and she drives him into the ground. Finally, in verse 22, enter Barak, who had been hot on Sisera's trail. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want us just briefly to see three things from this narrative this morning. First, God uses all of us. It is not an accident that the person who summons Barak to fight and the person who delivers the decisive blow are both women. Chapter 5, women are featured prominently as well. We're put in the shoes of Deborah, who is a sort of mother for Israel. And we meet, as we'll see at the end of the sermon, the mother of Sisera, the mother of the guy that died when the tent peg went through his temple. We see her waiting on her son to return victoriously from the battle, wondering what in the world is taking so long. Why, she asks, are the chariots long in coming? Oh, it's not accidental that women are featured in this text, just like it's not accidental that Ehud was left-handed and Shamgar was not an Israelite. The role of women in this story helps us understand it. Understanding in terms of gender, gender roles, society, sexuality, is much needed in our age. This is a helpful moment to say a word, not the final word, not the full word, certainly, about gender, sexuality. Considering we live in a divisive and confused age on issues such as these. Now, if you know me at all, you know I, I, I'm pretty calm. I don't get riled up 
easily. And this translates to the way I, I do theology. Uh, I am I'm not an old man, you know, I'm still relatively young, though the grays are popping up slowly, but surely I see them. I have seven as we speak. Um, you know, I'm 29 years old, and in the last nine years, I've lived through the four of the greatest threats in the history of the church, and somehow the gospel has prevailed. Uh, the gospel holds, and the gospel will always hold, for there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, as Paul reminded the Ephesians, as as God reminded John, who reminded the churches in Ephesus in the book of the Revelation, that though Babylon seems so strong, Babylon too will die. That though the great empires have such great power, they, they won't. Apocalyptic literature is not predicting the future. Apocalyptic literature is telling us what's real about now and the future. Apocalyptic Toss, this means to unveil, to unmask, to, to show the reality behind the facade. And God wants us to see that though the earthly empires seem so strong, their ideologies so convincing, they are nothing more than a footnote in the story of God for his glory. I'm allergic to hot takes. I don't get riled up by buzzwords. I don't contend that we must have conversation on the on the boundaries that social media has set for us. I'm old enough to know controversies in the church come and go like markdowns at Walmart. So let me say quick things about our approach to topics that people are going to disagree about or the church, we, though we may agree, will disagree with the world about. How do we approach issues where there's great confusion around us? How do we approach issues like gender, I'm going to say four things here. If you're taking notes, this might be helpful. First, let's get our authority right. Before we do anything, we got to get our authority right. Our authority is God himself revealed to us through the word of God. Our authority then is the holy scriptures. Authority does not lie fundamentally in government. Authority does not lie fundamentally in popular opinion. Authority does not lie in the rule of the masses over ideological issues. Authority does not lie in my own heart, my own mind. That's the whole point of judges. For what? There was no king in Israel. So what? Everyone did what was right in whose eyes? Their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In the period of the judges, the people of Israel got their authority wrong. If we're to speak rightly and truly on any issue, we've got to get our authority right. Second thing, whenever we approach an issue like this, let's be consistent in our interpretation of the Bible. Let's be consistent in our interpretation of the Bible, seeking to be faithful to the text, reading it grammatically, reading it literarily as a piece of literature, Leading it, reading it as what it tells us to be true historically, and reading it in its canonical context. How does this book make sense at the, at the foundation of its grammar, at the function of it as a book as a whole? How does it make sense in that book as a whole in the whole Bible? And how can we understand the claims this book is making about God and reality? So let's get our authority right, and let's be consistent in our interpretation. Let's be faithful to the text, because we believe that Scripture should interpret Scripture. And so we need some ground rules to help us do that. Let's get our authority right. Let's be consistent in our interpretation. Third, let's avoid ideology. We live in an ideological age. We live in an age where everyone wants to, and it's not new to this age, it happens in every age, the ideologies just shift. 
We tend to filter data through what we perceive to be important or what we want to be truth. So ideology that we should avoid is something we superimpose onto the text. What is a fill-in-the-blank reading of the text? The only blank we want to fill in there is faithful. What is a faithful reading of this text? So let's avoid ideology. So we're superimposing things onto the text. Now let's affirm, this is the fourth point, let's affirm good doctrine that rises from the text. As we seek to read the Bible in its grammatical context, its historical context, its literary context, and then its canonical context. And the, the, it's one story. One story with one fundamental primary author. Let's affirm the doctrine that rises from it. Let's joyfully and humbly affirm those things. Because we are in submission to the scriptures. and We interpret scriptures as true, good, and beautiful. Even when, and especially when, those texts are not popular in the world around us. So there's a simple question. If women are featured prominently here, what, what is this text teaching us about women and their role amongst the people of God? First, we are meant to notice that Deborah is a woman and she's a leader. She is a wise, godly leader of the whole population who is trusted as a prophetess. That word is ascribed to a few women in the Old Testament. If you were to read over the Old Testament, you would see that generally speaking, women can serve in any leadership capacity save that of a priest in the worship of the people of God. There's a corollary of the New Testament that seems to be the theme that runs through the New Testament, women serving in a myriad of ways in the church, save that of elder, a sort of corollary to the office of priest presiding over the worship of God's people. Well, why do we not see women as priests? And why do we see, as uh, I read the text, as many in the tradition read the text, women not serving as elders? Is this because women are incapable? Definitively, no. A second thing we're meant to notice is that Deborah does not fulfill the role of judge in the same way that others do. And this is where it can get confusing. Or you may have trouble if you have not been sort of steeped in the full story of Scripture. I do think we're meant to notice that her role is unique from the role of the other judges. She is the only judge who does not go into fighting battles herself. In fact, that is the role of Barak in the story. He is the warrior who leads people into battle. So in a sense, we see that there's this expectation, this normativity to women leading in the people of God. And then we're also meant to notice, because she's the only one, and because her role is different from the ones before her, and it is different from the ones who will follow her, that the way she leads out, the way she lives out that judgeship is fundamentally different than the other judges. So in the story of Deborah, let's bring this to the text. We see a female judge, just as honorable and godly as any male. But we see her leading the people of Israel in a different capacity. A worse capacity? No, a different capacity. Here's what I think we got to affirm in this gender-confused age. We must confess with the scriptures and the saints that men and women are equal in dignity, honor, and personhood, while also confessing with the scriptures and saints that our gender, our sexuality, is a God-given feature of our humanity. We are not men by accident. We are not women by accident. We are men and we are women. Man and woman. The scriptures say he created them. We don't, we don't sort of take differences between men and women and try to just blur them and ignore them. We acknowledge that there is 
man and there is woman, and that we are equally human, equally honored by God, equally loved by God, and equally capable of service to the Lord God in the kingdom of God. That we live out those roles in different ways because that living out in different ways points to the reality that a man is a man and a man is not a woman. A woman is a woman and a woman is not a man. There is so much more to be said here, but this is not the point. This is not the sermon. As a father of a daughter who I pray grows up to slay dragons, I want you to know that women are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Women are not merely accessories to men. They are not trophies, and they are not simply table setters. They are tent-peg drivers and wisdom dispensers. In the kingdom of God, real women do real work, like settling disputes, slaying pagan kings. In this church, the gifts of women are treasured and essential because God uses all of us. Yes, he uses Barak, but you cannot tell this story without Deborah and Jael, and I'm not interested in trying to. In the same way, you cannot tell the story of Christianity without hearing an echo of Mary the Magdalene. He is not here, for he has risen. God honors and equips women to serve in his kingdom. That does not lead us to blur the distinctions between men and women and the ways those distinctions work themselves out in the home and in the church. God works through men. God works through women. And through all of us, he's doing immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. The second thing we see is that God works all things to his ends. God works through everything. Now, the second thing I want to say is just look at all these things that are coming together. Deborah has to call for Barak. Barak has to heed the call of Deborah. The soldiers have to then heed the call of Barak when doom is almost assured. And they have to do this in a situation where the people of God are once again outgunned, outnumbered, and outmanned. They believe the words from the lips of the servant. And meanwhile, so this all has to happen. This has to happen amongst the people. They got to get all this thing right. As a leader of people, I know how hard it is to get those people moving in the same direction. So that's all got to happen within Israel. And then over here, Sisera has got to be positioning his troops just to the place where he thinks they'll have the best chance of winning. But what he doesn't know is the advice he's heard is not good advice. That the way he's positioning them is actually setting them up to lose. It's like a wedding I did back in June. I was waiting on someone to tell me when to go up on the stage. Well, I, someone on the front row said, go up now. It wasn't the wedding planner. It was someone's crazy cousin. <laughs> I'm up on that stage with the groom 12 minutes before the groom shows up or the bride shows up. It was the worst 12 minutes of my life. Me and the groom are just standing there like this. Hey, uh, do you know who that was that told us to come up here? I don't know. She must be from her family. Well, I don't think they work here. And so we just had to do this for 12 minutes, looking out at the people, smiling, because we got bad advice. Cicero is positioning his troops to the place he thinks they'll have the best chance of winning. In reality, they're being set up for failure. And oh yeah, once they do fail, Cicero has to know that there's a woman whose house is there and she would be a friendly place because of some web of ancient Near Eastern politics that I dare not try to unfurl. 
Some political factors had at some point combined to make Sisera think that this would be a safe place for him. And for some reason, Jael has decided that this is not a safe place for him. That in fact, that she, once he gets there, she's not going to do what he says. She's going to wrap him up in a rug, give him some milk and kill him. So when you get off her the rug, be very wary. And so there are all these things that have to happen. And there's only one person who can orchestrate all of them. In chapter 5, in that theological reflection, Deborah and Barak speak to the sovereignty of God over the elements of nature. Verse 19. Oh, the kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horses who was with galloping, galloping of his steeds. Old Deborah and Barak are reflecting on this event and they, they cry out that the stars fought. The river fought. The gods of nature have lost to the God over nature at whose names the winds and waves cease through the waters of Kishon, to the swampy valleys that stalled out iron chariots, to the words of Deborah, the tent peg of Jael, the faith of Barak, the political alliances of the ancient Near East, through all these things that seem completely unrelated, the Lord God is working for the salvation and deliverance of his people. Why does that matter to you? I once heard a pastor say, God is doing 10,000 things in your life and you might know about three of them. Friends, God is working in ways that if you knew would blow your mind. Your whole life is held in the palm of his hand. Nothing that happens to you, nothing that happens around you is ultimately inconsequential. He uses every single bit of it. Let me encourage you. Not all of you are in a place in your life where you want to be. You're disappointed about what hasn't worked out. You're worried about what might not work out. You regret what you've done. Let me remind you, if God is working through all these things, then you are right where God wants you for him to use you. He is working through all that other stuff that seems to be in your way, problematic, slowing you down, all that stuff that's outside your control, all you gotta do is remember this, it, it's not outside of his. He is working through every single detail that seems absolutely unrelated, from political alliances to family drama to tent pegs to fighting warriors, judges, and soldiers. And to this great God, finally, our last point, belongs the victory. God grants victory. One thing a lot of people uh, mention when they preach this text or when they read this text is that there is not a clear hero, not one clear hero, in other words. People act commendably. Deborah acts commendably. Uh, Jael, maybe, I don't know, how, do, how are we going to handle this? It's, it's not clear. Um, I mean, it's clear that I mean, the last time I checked the Ten Commandments, I don't know if those changed or not, but do not kill is on there. And this seems to be a little bit of a different situation. But so anyways, it, it's, it's just unclear. Is this war? Is she doing right? Is she doing wrong? It's, it's murky, tricky, sticky. Uh, Barack, it's kind of unclear. Is he, is he really confident and willing to fight for no glory um, in that way pointing us to Christ? Or is he, uh, 
is he kind of hesitant and unwilling to take up the mantle that is rightfully his and he needs someone else to come and, and push him and push him and push him um, and though he'll do it. Is Deborah the hero, Barak, Jael? I, I don't know. I think we're meant to see that only God is the hero. None of this is supposed to happen. Like, people don't defeat armies of 900 iron chariots when they only had none. It's clear that people who succeed in this story do so for two reasons. And the last important thing I'll say first. First, they have sided with the God of Israel. People in this story succeed, and throughout the Old Testament, quite simply because they have sided with the God of Israel. And second, how do they side with the God of Israel? They have acted in faith, trusting God was able to do what he says. This is what happened. This is how God wins in our life, right? We side with the living God, and we take him at his word. The people who succeeded in this story do so for two reasons. They have aligned with the God of Israel, and they have acted in faith, trusting that God is able to do what he says. The song of chapter five gives us a look at those who have not sided with the God of Israel. In the words of the army commander Sisera's mother. Look with me in verse 28. Her words uh, sort of spoken by the, by the speaker, not her sort of imaginary, perhaps considering what she may be saying, are haunting. In one sense you empathize with her, but in another sense, it's clear that those who are not walking with the living God are um, not, not living well. So let's see it together. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? She's asking, why, why is he not here yet? Imagine the mother looking through the window. Why is his car not here yet? Is he broken down? Is he his tire deflated? Well, where is he? He said he'd be home by now, but he's not here. Where is he? And we empathize with her. We feel that, that fear, that longing, that dread that she has. But the words of her princess, her advisors, you began to lose that pity a little bit. Her wisest princesses answer, indeed, she answers herself, have they not found and divided the spoil? Listen to how crassly the nations speak of women. A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Oh, is he not having his way, to put it gently, with two, three women. It's not doing what he wants with them, impregnating them, getting their riches and their finest spoils. Oh, surely he's not here yet because he is enjoying the spoils of his victory. Verse 31 reminds us what is true. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, because we know as we're reading this poem that he is not in bed with Israelite women. He is not getting gold and fabrics and all the things that you would steal from a people you have conquered. He's lying on the ground rather than exploiting women, having been fooled by one with a tent peg through his temple and a rug around his body. In worship, 
They cry out, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Those who have sided with the God of Israel have simply taken him at his word. You see, the armies of Israel, led by their commander Barak, at the word of Deborah the prophetess, acted in faith. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Hebrews 11 here, that famous chapter about faith. What shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon. And guess who the writer of Hebrews mentions as an exemplar of faith? From our story this morning, Barak. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. The heroes of this story, one of the most important points of this sermon, are not commended for their strength, but for their faith. The heroes of this story are not commended for their fortitude and their strength and their power, but they are commended for their faith. They have placed their faith in the living God and the victory belongs to him. Friends, this is how we root out the idols in our hearts, the foreign gods who try to set up camp in the promised land that Jesus has conquered inside of us. This is how we topple them. This is how we defeat them, by walking in faith, by trusting the promises of God, that in Christ we have forgiveness of sins, redemption of our trespasses. In Christ we are made new. In Christ we are made whole. In Christ we are free not to be enslaved by sin, but to crush the chains of sin. The Christian life from its beginning to its end is a life of faith. It doesn't begin by faith and sort of end with your best efforts. It begins by faith, it proceeds by faith, and it ends by faith. When that faith gives way to sight and that which we believed gives way to the substance in whom we have believed. When we share the gospel of Jesus, the good news of what he's done, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his session. When we share that news, we are telling an Old Testament hymn praise. We're saying the sort of thing like we see in verses 10 and 11, where the people of God are reflecting on the story of God, reflecting on this great victory they've won. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, and you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. In other words, you guys who are rich, tell the story. You guys who are poor, tell the story. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. From the richest to the poorest, he said, get together at the watering hole, pull out the instruments, and tell the story of God's victory. Tell the story of God's grace. Tell the story of God's power. Tell the story where a bunch of little villagers went and took down armies by faith. When we share the good news of Jesus with others, we are telling the story of how the little villagers like us triumph over the great sins in our life. That Jesus, the great warrior, the one to whom all these judges point, has come into our life and he has used a vehicle of death for a vehicle to give us his life. 
we may ask, why is the chariot long in coming? Oh, because the Lord, in his infinite knowledge, unlimited power, and through a million random events, has triumphed over his enemies. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, when will you have your final say? When will you have the final word, Satan? Why is your chariot so long in coming? Oh, because death has been defeated by Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, you're good and gracious and kind. You are the creator of all. You are the judge of all. We've reflected this morning on the reality that you use all of us, men and women alike, to tell your story, to point the nations to you. Lord, we've reflected this morning on the reality that you work through all sorts of things in all sorts of ways to bring about your purposes of salvation and deliverance. And Lord, this morning we've seen from this text that, that you are the one who grants victory. You are the one with all power and might. Why is the chariot long in coming? Because you, Lord, have triumphed over your enemies in your infinite knowledge, unlimited power, and through every seemingly random event. And in the name of Jesus the Christ, who triumphs over the grave, we pray. Amen.